Welcome to the sermon podcast for Canton Church, a campus of Mount Perrin North. We exist to help people live a Christ-centered life, especially those disconnected from Christ. And we hope you are encouraged by today's message. I recently read a story about a successful young businessman who was able to get his dream car. He bought a brand new black Jaguar, and it was like his, his baby. It was what he'd always wanted. And so one day he was driving his brand new, just a few days old, he was driving his brand new black Jaguar, and he's driving. It has all the bells, all the whistles. He's driving through this suburban neighborhood, and he's driving down this road, and he's just kind of, you know, thinking about his car and thinking about how awesome his car is and just how, really how awesome he is. And so he's, he's driving down the road, and, and all of a sudden he, he hears this terrible noise and he kind of feels something change, like he get the car kind of jars a little bit. And so he slams on his brakes, and he realizes that someone has thrown something at his car and hit his brand new car. And so he, he looks around, and he sees something back there. So he pops the car in reverse, and he takes it as fast as he can back in reverse until he gets to where this little kid is standing on the side of the road, and he's holding some bricks. And he, he realizes, man, this kid has thrown a brick at my brand new black Jaguar. And so he gets out. He sees that the side of his car is dented and part of the windshield is completely cracked. And so he is screaming at this little kid. I mean, just yelling at him. And How dare you? I can't believe you would throw something like that from the side of the road and hit my car. Where are your parents? I'm going to sue them. They're going to pay for this. You're going to pay for it. I can't believe that. Well, the whole time that he's screaming at the kid, the kid's screaming at him. And he's yelling at this guy, but the guy's not listening. And eventually the guy calms down enough to hear the kid screaming, Thank you, sir, for stopping. I can't believe I finally got somebody's attention. Nobody else would stop. Thank you for stopping, and, and please, would you help me? And the man looks around, and the kid says, My brother has fallen out of his wheelchair. The wheel rolled over the curb, and he's back here in the road. And sure enough, the guy looks, and where he had just driven past, he sees a young boy, a little older than this one, a young boy that is laying on the road, wheelchair turned over, and it looks like he's cut up pretty good. So he gathers himself. He takes this other boy. They go over, and they run quickly, and he picks up this, this boy, and he takes his wheelchair, and he turns it upright, and he puts the young boy back in the wheelchair, and he takes out his handkerchief. And he goes with his handkerchief and he tries to apply it to the places that it looks like the boy's cut up and bleeding and wounded. And he tries to heal those places the best he can or at least, you know, just kind of stop the bleeding. And he rolls the wheelchair to the kid's house. And he gets there and he tells the parents, he said, I'm so sorry I came upon this situation and I, I did the best that I could. I, I don't know if he's okay and is there anything that I can do? And they said, no, thank you so much for helping us. And Thank you, I appreciate it. And so he leaves, and he walks back towards his brand-new black Jaguar. He gets there, and he sees the damage to the side of his car, and he makes a commitment to himself that day. And according to the story that I read, he kept this commitment as long as he had the car, that he would never repair the dent in the car or the broken windshield as a reminder to him that he needs to make sure he is focusing on those around him, seeing needs so that he can meet needs. Back in the 1960s or 70s, psychologists were doing a study, and they were trying to determine how people responded to needs. And so they took, at Princeton University, a group of students, and they divided them into two groups. One group they brought in, and they said, one at a time, they said, hey, here's what we want you to do. We want you to go across campus, and we want you to deliver a, a speech about why you study theology. 
just a couple minute speech. Just we're going to send you there. The buildings just across the campus there. It'll take you a couple minutes to walk there. But we want you to go over there and just deliver a speech about why you study theology. But that, that's what he told the group one. Group two, they said, hey, here's what we want you to do. We want you to go across campus and we want you to deliver a speech on the story of the Good Samaritan. Just explain the story of the Good Samaritan in a couple of minutes. And then what they did is they took both groups and they split them in half again and they told one half of each group, hey, it's like a two or three minute walk over to this building, but they've already started. You need to get over there in a hurry. And then to the other half of each group, they said, hey, listen, it's just a couple minute walk over to the building, but it doesn't start for 20 or 30 minutes. You got plenty of time. If you want to head over there now, that's fine. Well, they had paid an actor to position himself between where they were and where they were headed, and he was going to be someone that was in need, halfway between where they were at and where they were headed. And over 60%, now here's the deal, it didn't matter if they were delivering a speech on why they were studying theology or if they were giving a speech on the story of the Great Samaritan. Over 60% of the people that thought they had time stopped to help that person in need. Less than 10% of the people who thought they were in a hurry stopped to meet the need. Of that person. Now, two stories, very similar ideas. That when we're in a hurry, when we're self-absorbed, when we're self-consumed, when we're thinking about ourselves, or we think we're in a hurry, or we're headed somewhere, or we're going somewhere, we're doing something, we don't always notice what's taking place around us. Now, today is not really even about meeting needs. It's not really even about the Good Samaritan or trying to help people. It's about something larger than that, I believe. We started a brand new series last week called Addicted, and last week we looked at this idea of addicted to pleasure, and we were talking about, you know, substance abuse and issues related to addiction, the way that we probably think about addiction. But today I want us to look at a little different take on addiction, and I want us to look at this idea of addicted to busy. Now I realize when you hear that, you probably think, well, I don't even even know that was an addiction, and I'm I'm sure I don't have it, and I don't know many people that have it, but I I think as we dive in, you're going to realize Maybe it's a little larger problem than we thought. I read a book several years ago by Pastor Brady Boyd called Addicted to Busy. And while some of the content in today's message comes from this, not a lot of it does, but this is an incredible book which I would highly, highly recommend. Just a great book about busyness and the way that we conduct our lives and the rhythm that we live our lives. But this idea of addicted to busy for all of us is a challenge to really evaluate how we live and the pace at which we live, and the way that we pause or don't pause to reflect and remember and do life. And so if we're going to talk about busyness, I think it would be great for all of us to define it the same way. Busy, as I'm defining it here from the dictionary, is having a lot of activity or not a lot of idle time. Having a lot of activity or not a lot of idle time. And you may say, well, listen, that's me to a T, but I don't think that's a sin, and I don't know that that's addiction. It's just the stage of life I find myself in, or it's just the season I find myself in, or the schedule that I keep right now. There's just a lot of activities. There's a lot going on, and I, and I would readily admit we're in a season like that. We've got young kids. They're all playing sports and doing different things, and I recognize that. So this is not about just the activity and just the busyness itself. This is that larger idea of addiction towards busyness. Last week, we started with a definition of addiction that I told you we would use all three weeks. This comes from the American Society of Addiction Medicine. It says that addiction is an individual pathologically pursuing reward and or relief by substance use or other behaviors. Addiction is characterized by an inability to consistently abstain, impairment in behavioral control, craving, diminished recognition of significant problems with one's behavior and interpersonal relationships, and a dysfunctional emotional response. Like other chronic diseases, addiction often involves cycles of relapse and remission. 
So today, we're talking about a person's pathological pursuit of reward and or relief by having a lot of activity or not being idle. Now, you may say, well, that's crazy because I wish I could do less. I wish I had time to just stop and rest, and I wish there were less things on my calendar. I wish there were less activity. So I don't think this is an addiction. I don't think this is something I'm really rushing around. I think I'm just doing what's expected of me. 1967 futurists, and that's a group of people that study present realities and project future trends and future behavior. So in 1967, a group of futurists were looking ahead, and they said that they thought that the current in 1967 40-hour work week would shrink in the future. The reason that they thought that was because they said with all of the efficiencies in technology, they said all of the, the, the ways that we're getting smarter and the way people are working, we think that what people are having to take 40 hours to do now will shrink to about 22 hours a week. Anybody full-time working 22 hours a week? No, here's the reality. American workers are now working on average 61.2 hours per week. 61.2 hours per week. Here's what we did. We took our 40-hour work week and the 22 that they said would shrink to, and we put it on top, and now we work 62 hours. And it's not just about work, because I realize, like, you've got to-do lists, and you've got things that you're required to do, and your boss is on you to do some things, but when we think about work, that's one of the easiest places to start talking about busyness and the ways that we conduct our lives. Well, God himself had a work week. It's in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 as he begins creating everything that we see created in the beginning of the story of humanity and the earth. In days 1 through 6, he creates the heavens and the earth, and he creates the waters, and he creates the land, and he creates the trees and the bugs and the, everything that was created. And then he creates man and woman. And then on day seven, we read in Genesis chapter two, verse three, it says this. The, then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, when I read that verse, and I've read it a lot of times, and I've heard that on the seventh day he rested, and, and I've sat through sermons like you are right now where people preached about Sabbath and preached about rest and preached about the seventh day, and, and, and I've, I've heard it and I've thought it, but he, look at this one more time. I don't know if my theology was big enough to grasp this idea. He, he blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating the heathen. I, I don't think I ever thought about God needing rest. And maybe it wasn't so much a need as it was an intentionality of creating it, right? That he specifically carved out a place in our time for rest. Remember, he had just created time. Now he's taking part of that time and saying, this is a time that you rest, that you pause. Now, he didn't say work was bad. Some of you wish he would have said that. He didn't say you shouldn't work. It says that from his work, he rested. He did work. He did the things that were necessary. He created all that needed to be created. And then he rested. Everything that had been created was done in that moment so that he could rest. And then what happens? Well, Adam and Eve, they sinned, and then work got distorted even beyond that. And then we see all of humanity continue to grow, and the story of humanity grow. And then we see Joseph, and he has a dream, and he eventually finds his way into Egypt and from Egypt, he is set up apart, and Pharaoh puts him in power, and God really through that puts him in power. And so his family eventually comes to Egypt, and then they begin having kids and grandkids and all that kind of stuff until they grow, and they begin outnumbering the people of Egypt. 
And there comes a Pharaoh, according to the Bible, not the Pharaoh that Joseph met, but a different Pharaoh after that first one had died, a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph or the things that he had done or the God of Joseph. And so now he looks around and he sees that the Israelites are beginning to outnumber the Egyptians, and he is worried that they're going to try to overthrow them and take power away from them. And so he enslaves all the Israelites. And the Egyptians are now in control. And here's what happens. As they're enslaved, they have to work for the Egyptians. And the Egyptians give them tasks and responsibilities. Here's what you do. You work for us. We'll give you some straw. We'll provide it. You make brick. Here's what you do. You just work. You produce. And, and, and you've got to just keep producing. That's what you're good for is that you produce what we need. You do what's necessary to be done. And later when Moses comes and God uses Moses to set God's people free, in the process of that, Pharaoh decides what he's going to do to punish the children of Israel is he's going to take away the straw. He's not going to provide the supplies anymore. He's going to make them get their own supplies, but their quota is going to go up. they got to make more bricks with less supplies provided. It's about production. Their identity, their worth, their acceptance, their value was about what they could produce. That captivity mindset says, I am what I can do. That's what a captivity mindset is. That captivity mindset says, I am only as good as what I produce with my hands. And so eventually Moses, they, they come out, they walk across on dry land, the waters roll back and take care of their enemies, and they find themselves out in the wilderness headed towards the promised land. And when they get out there, they get hungry. A couple of days into the journey, they get hungry. And so God says, well, I'll send manna. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you some instructions as to how you should conduct yourselves when you're taking the manna in. This is before the Ten Commandments. This is before the law. This is before, you know, keep the Sabbath day and make it holy. Before any of that, he says, I want to give you some instructions about how you should conduct yourselves when you are collecting the manna. So the manna would fall from heaven. Days one through five, you are supposed to go and collect enough manna for that day. If you try to collect two days worth, it's going to spoil overnight. Only get enough manna for that day so that you trust me every single day to be your provider. That's different for a group of people that had come out of Egypt. Because here's what he says on the sixth day, I want you to collect two days worth. The instructions change on day six. Because tomorrow, you're not, I'm not sending manna on day seven. I'm not creating something new on day seven. On day seven, I rest. I create on days one through six. I already did that in creation. So on day seven, I will not create manna. You must, on day six, make preparations for that and collect two days. If you collect two days' worth on days one through five, it will spoil. You collect two days' worth on day six, it will keep overnight. So that on day seven, when you wake up, you already have provision from me the previous day. So that I rest and you rest. You don't have to do work to collect your food. I've already provided for you. So on day seven, pre-ten commandments, pre-keep the Sabbath day and make it holy, God is helping them to look back at his creative order and bringing for them into understanding that there is a time to rest and not to work. There is a time to rest and not be busy. This was a new pattern of behavior them. This wasn't about what you produce. It wasn't about what you can do with your hands. It says, no, 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 no. Back in Egypt, your identity was wrapped up in what you could do. 
They only allowed you to live if you met their quota. They only allowed you to live if you did what was required of you and you, you met all your obligations and you stayed busy and you did all the stuff. But what I'm saying to you is I've already given you your identity. I am providing for you. I'm doing the work. So it's okay for you to take a break and rest. There's got to be a time in your schedule. There's got to be a place where you pause long enough to rest. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15 God says to them, hey, I want to help you understand what I'm doing related to Sabbath. He says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. There's something different about a captivity mindset than there is about a freedom mindset. That when you're in captivity, when you're a slave, when you're in bondage, you are consumed with producing something. Because that's how you get acceptance. But in your freedom, you have to trust me enough to honor the day that I have set aside for you to rest. There's something different about this mindset. Bus busyness is not our identity. It's not the, uh, the identity that we carry. It's not the name that we have. We are not just what we produce with our lives. And so then the Ten Commandments came. Keep the Sabbath. Make it holy. Honor it, set it apart, make it sacred. But what did the children of Israel do? They did what you and I do with some of the commands of God, some of the instructions of God. They didn't honor the spirit of the law just to rest in the freedom of what God had given them, this free gift of time. They took it to the letter of the law, and they said, okay, so we're not supposed to do anything on the Sabbath. I'm going to put that on my to-do list. So I'm going to keep the law of not doing anything by making sure it's on my to-do list. That the not doing is now a to-do. So when Jesus shows up in the Gospels, he's walking around on some Sabbath days and he's doing some things. A couple of different Gospel accounts. One time he heals somebody that's sick on the Sabbath. The Pharisees get upset about that. They say, hey, you can't heal. You can't do work on the Sabbath. Another time he and his disciples are walking through a field and his disciples just pluck some of the grain up and they begin eating the grain. They say, hey, why are your disciples dishonoring the Sabbath to do something? And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa you guys have... What? The free gift of Sabbath that my father gave to you that was supposed to be a gift to you not to do anything instead of making it a gift that you freely receive of not doing anything and resting, you've now made a to-do list. It's one of the things that you check off to know whether or not you're a good follower of the law. What? He says, no, 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 no. The man wasn't made for Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. Sabbath was given to man as a free gift. You've missed the intent of this free gift from the Father. But no, no, what they were doing is they were just mimicking what had been shown to them. We get a lot of great traits from our parents. I, I got a lot of great traits. Some of the best things about me came straight from my mom and dad, the way that they acted, the way that they lived their lives. But there were some bad traits that my parents had that I, I kind of picked up along the way. My parents did not have a regular routine of rest. They didn't. I mean, they would sleep every night for the most part, but I mean, you know, they, they didn't have like a day every week that they took off and time that they rested and relaxed from whatever they had been doing. They would pretty much go as hard as they could, as fast as they could for as long as they could, and then they would crash for like three or four days. They would work really hard for three, four, five, six weeks at a time, and then they'd take like four days where they didn't get out of their pajamas or leave the house. They ordered pizza like every meal. Like they just, that's why I love pizza so much, right? But they would just work really hard and just keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. And then they'd go, 
and then they would just collapse and stop because their body would say, you've got to take a break. And if I'm being honest with you, that's something that I struggle with. Corey's way better at rest and creating sustainable pace in our home than I am. And so I'm constantly pushing and driving and going until it's time to just collapse for three or four or five days. I just want to just kind of go into a, a cave and just live there for three or four days. It's not sustainable. It's not what we've been called to do, but we tend to mimic what we see in other people. In his book, Hamlet's Blackberry, William Powers tells this story of a friend that was immigrating to the United States from a non-English-speaking country. That friend comes and comes into the United States and begins doing life and trying to learn the language and learn the way of life. And a few weeks into that process, the friend encounters William Powers, and, and so they're interacting. And so his friend, William Powers says to his friend, how are you doing? And his friend looks to the ground and says, busy, so busy. William Powers says, I think there may have been a translation issue. I don't think you understand what I'm asking. So tries to explain again and says, no, 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 how are you doing? And his friend says, busy, busy, so busy. And so William Powers tries to really kind of figure out what's going on. And so they have this conversation. And what William Powers realizes is that his friend had been observing Americans and had seen that that was the normal response for people when they were asked, how are you doing? Some variation of looking to the ground and saying, busy, so busy. You ever do that? Or somebody says, how you doing? You know, oh, man, I'm busier than I've ever been. How you doing? Oh, work's crazy. How you doing? Man, we are going 90 to nothing right now. It's a busy season, bro. I mean, yeah, man, it's a crazy time. It's busy. Well, that's, that's not actually what you were asked, right? How are you doing? The Amish have a greeting that they greet one another with from time to time. It says, how goes your soul? How goes your soul? That's really the motivation behind the question that we would ask one another. How goes your soul? How are you doing? We may or may not actually want them to respond, right? Because when we say sometimes, how are you doing? And they start actually like bearing their soul to us. We're like, whoa, I just want to know if you were busy or not. That's all I want to know. <laughs> like, don't, don't be telling me all your stuff, man. I just want to know if you're busy or not. I'm busier than I've ever been. How are you? Right? You're busy? All right. Right? Because that's, no, no, no. If we actually walked up to someone and we truly wanted to know and we said to them, how goes your soul? I bet a lot of us, if we're honest, we would answer it the same way. Busier than I've ever been. My soul's busy. I, I'm so busy I almost can't still my soul. I can't, I can't rest my soul. There's so much going on. It feels like waves are crashing constantly in my life and in my soul. I, I can't even hear myself think. I can't hear anything in my soul from God. Like I just... I'm busy. It's crazy busy right now in my soul. We struggle to be open and vulnerable so many times, but I think if we were actually asked, how goes your soul, that that's what we would do. That's how we would answer it. We would say, I, I, I'm busy. I, I'm. Well, author Brene Brown says in her book, Daring Greatly, she talks about this numbing behavior that we have, that we use as armor to kind of block vulnerability, so we don't actually have to be vulnerable and we don't have to actually bear our soul. And she talks about that addictive behavior, that addiction to busyness, 
that so often we put out as a front that we say, hey, this is, this is what I'm projecting to you. I'm busy. I'm crazier than I've ever been right now. Man, things are going just 90 to nothing because we don't actually want to open up and talk about who we really are and what's really going on. She says, unless you think that numbing doesn't apply to you because you're not hooked on some type of substance, she clarifies by saying this. One of the most universal numbing strategies is what I call crazy busy. I often say that when they start having 12-step meetings for busy-aholics, they'll need to rent out football stadiums. We are a culture of people who've bought into the idea that if we stay busy enough, the truth of our lives won't catch up with us. Several years ago, some archaeologists wanted to go deep into the woods to be able to find what they believed in that place would something that they could unearth and, and would just be an incredible find for them. And so they contracted with some Incan tribesmen to lead them to this place because the Incans knew right where it was at. And so they contracted them and said, hey, would you take us to this place? And so the Incans agreed to do that, and they sent some of their leaders. And they, they set off on their journey, and they took supplies, and they were going to go, and they were going to set camp. And then the second day, they would go into the place that they were going to go and dig. And they start off on the journey, and they have a good pace, and they're moving pretty quickly towards their target. And they're moving, they're moving, they're moving. And all of a sudden, the Incan tribesmen stop all at the same time. They just stop, and they sit down on the ground. And the archaeologists are like, what is going on? What's happening? We've got to keep moving. We, like, the sun is going down soon. We've got to get to the place. We're going to make camp. Like, let's move. Let's go. What are we doing? They won't respond. Hey, listen, get up. We've got to keep moving. We'll take a break later. We'll eat. We've got some supplies. Like, let's keep moving. After a little time, the Incan tribesmen, they stand up and they start walking, and the archaeologists are confused. What in the world is going on? And so they catch up to the leader, one of the tribesmen, and they say, hey, what is happening and the tribesman responds with this, we had been moving too fast and we had to wait for our souls to catch up. Now you say, well, that's crazy. I don't, I mean, that's some kind of Indian story. I don't even know if I believe that. My fear for all of us today is that we've been moving too fast and we've left our souls behind. We've, we've put out in front of us this mask of busyness and constantly moving, and constantly being active, and never being idle, and never resting, and never pausing, and we just continue to pursue, pursue, rush, run, run. Don't take all of our vacation days. Never take a day off. Never turn our devices off. We just keep moving, keep moving, keep moving, and, and we're, what we're really doing is we're just saying, I, I don't want to deal with what's going on on the inside of me. I, I'm masking some things that I am so afraid of, because if we'd ever get off the hamster wheel of busyness and be forced to notice what was actually inside of us, what we might find is that our marriage is a little unhealthier than we like to project. That our parenting skills are probably not what we want them to be and we're a little bit worried that maybe our kids aren't going to turn out like we want them to turn out because we're not spending as much time with them as we know we should. We get uncomfortable thinking about how uncomfortable we are with boredom and just not actually having something to constantly do. We're afraid of being ordinary when the people around us seem to have figured out how to be extraordinary. We tend to feel unworthy or unlovable unless we're overachieving. Maybe we feel lonely even when we're surrounded by a crowd of people. And so what we do is we just mask it. We just hide it. And I wonder today what we're hiding behind our to-do lists. 
Because remember what addiction is. Addiction is a pathological pursuit of reward or relief. And some of us are being rewarded for our busyness. It's probably one of the most rewarded addictions in our society. You get promoted, you get raises. People pat you on the back and talk about how great you're doing because you're working so hard. You haven't taken an off day in weeks. Way to go. You left vacation days on the table. That's impressive. One of the saddest commercials I've ever seen was a few years ago when the kids were asking rhetorical questions of their parents like, wait a minute, you get free paid for days to take vacation and you don't take them? What? Like kids could not comprehend that you could get paid to sit at home and do nothing or go on vacation and you wouldn't want to do that. I watched that commercial, couldn't even tell you what it was for, probably a credit card or something. And I thought, Lord, never let that be me. You get rewarded for this type of addiction so often. But I think a lot of times this addiction is also just about trying to find relief from the things that we're so afraid of. Because here's what we know. Busyness keeps us stimulated but never satisfied. Busyness keeps us stimulated but never satisfied. It keeps us stimulated. It it scratches the itch. we're, We're hyper. We're excited. There's a lot going on. We love the pace. We love the feeling. We love the pats on the back. We love that it covers up whatever it is we're hiding. But it is never fully satisfying to our soul because busyness is not what we were created for. We were created for work and then for rest. One of my favorite episodes of The Andy Griffith Show, of which I've seen all the episodes is an episode about a Sunday morning where they went to church and there was a traveling guest speaker. And he was teaching that day on rest. Slow down. Take a load off. Rest. Find reward in rest and slowing down. And so after church, they go back to Andy's house and Aunt B's probably made an incredible lunch. And then they find themselves on Andy's porch. And they are reminiscing about the sermon, which I know you all do after lunch as well, every Sunday. (laughs) Talking about how life-changing it was. And you're like, wait, I went to church today? What? Um, So they're reflecting on their time in church, and they're thinking about rest and slow down. And Barney's rocking in the chair, and he starts to doze off, which he had done in church too, which was funny. And Andy's having a conversation with him, and Barney's responding, but it's not really making sense, and he's not really doing anything with it, which is very reminiscent of the conversations that Corey and I have when I'm falling asleep late at night. And She's wanting answers, and I'm giving answers, but I'm not really coherent, and I'm not really thinking about what I'm saying. That's what's happening with Barney and Andy there on the porch. And all of a sudden, they sit up, and they remember a day back in the past where it was amazing because they had these band concerts on Sunday afternoon. And the band would get together, and they'd wear great uniforms, and they would play their instruments, and everybody would come to the city square. And, man, they'd play in the pavilion, and it was so relaxing, and it was so exciting, and they loved it. And so they decide... They're going to get the old band together. The band hadn't practiced in years, but they're going to get the old band together. And they're going to find the uniforms, and they're going to make sure that they're right, and they're going to stitch them up and sew them up really nice and get the ladies to help. They're going to fix up the old pavilion, and Gomer's got to get under there with them spiders, and he's got to prop that thing back up. And they're going to put everybody on the pavilion, and the band's going to play, and the whole city's going to come together, and it's going to be amazing. And they set out, and they work hard all afternoon to try to make it happen. And they realize they can't make it happen. And so they come back to Andy's porch and they just collapse into their chairs as they realize that they've completely failed. And it's about that time that the guest preacher walks by and he said, now here's a group that's figured it out. How to slow down and rest easy. 
Well, they hadn't figured anything out. They had been pursuing, trying to accomplish something that couldn't be done in the amount of time. They weren't resting. They were chasing and going after something. They hadn't rested at all. They had collapsed because they were exhausted. Because here's what we know. If you don't create space for rest, your body will create it for you. Health issues and other things that will arise because you've not been intentional about rest. And so they find themselves at that place. And I, I thought about that, that, that story and I thought about how it kind of relates to all of us because we sometimes live our lives as if we're living in a rocking chair. You ever thought about it? A rocking chair is all about kind of kicking and pushing off and creating a little motion here and a little activity and it kind of feels nice. And if you do it hard enough, like you could actually like really get this thing moving and I'm not going to do that because I'll fall backwards. And like you could really get this thing going and when you get to the end, you realize you haven't really gone anywhere. All of your activity, all of your motion hasn't really accomplished anything. An addiction to busy looks a little bit like life in a rocking chair. Not the rocking chair that you actually use on your day of rest, but I'm talking about the lifestyle of rocking back and forth and kicking as hard as you can and going as fast as you can, as hard as you can for as long as you can until you realize that you've actually accomplished nothing. You've just been kicking and screaming and you've just been making people think that you were doing something because busyness does not equate to productivity. Busyness does not equate to success. It's just busyness. And so we just kick and we push off and we keep moving and we keep doing nothing, actually. You remember when you were in school, the paper that they let us use, like that had the blue lines and then there was like a red line down the left side and you remember what your teacher would say? They'd say, hey, you're going to write. You're going to start at the red line, and you're going to start writing towards the right edge of your paper. But leave a little space over there. Don't run the words off the page. And, you know, there's a little spot at the top where you don't write. That's where you put the title, but you kind of leave the rest of it. When you get to the bottom, leave a line or two, and then flip it over, and then start writing or go to the next page. I would do that. But you know what I would do in the top part and around the sides and on the bottom? And so, You know what I would do? I would doodle. Some of you did too, right? Some of you still do. Like every time you're on the phone, you're just like writing your name in cursive or drawing the little 3D box and like whatever it is that you do, we just doodle, right? We doodle in the margins. We doodle in the empty space. Corey would write the names of the boys she had crushes on. I would draw football plays out and like X is going this way. We're going to do a handoff and this guy's going to block and I would doodle. Why? Because there was space to. All the best things in life happen in the margins. All the best things in life happen in the margins. I would do my work in the middle of the page. I'd write the answers and do my homework and fill out the things and do the work. Like, but wherever there was space, I would fill it in with creative thinking and dreams and hopes and ideas. And I, I, I would just doodle because all the best things in life happen in the margins. And so my question today is how much margin do you have in your life? Do you have a day where you just pause and rest and create enough margin that you can dream new dreams and think new things and hope new hopes and draw up new plays for life, a new plan? And write the names of people and relationships that you hope come into your life and how much margin have you created? Because that's what God created for you. In the rhythm of life that he created, he created a space for you to do work. But he created a margin that you would fill in with your creativity that he gave to you. 
Because here's what we know. When you don't create margin in your schedule, in your time, you don't have time to stop and help someone who's hurting because you're in a hurry. When you don't have margin in your schedule and your calendar, you can't just sit down at a meal and talk to somebody because you're constantly looking at your watch because you know you got to be somewhere else in just a few minutes. And so you rush through that moment to get to the next moment. You can't enjoy this moment here in this spot because there's no margin in your schedule. When there's no margin in your finances, you can't allow creative thinking dreaming new dreams to allow you to fund new ideas and chase new hobbies and pursue new things, either yours or someone else's. Because you're just edge to edge, wall to wall. There's no margin there. Do you have any margin in your life? Are you so addicted to busyness that you are kicking and screaming and you're going as fast as you can because I'm afraid one day you're going to get to the place where you realize that you've actually gone nowhere. Because you've tried to do in seven full days what God intended you to do in six, and you would accomplish on that seventh day enough to make the other six way more productive in the economy of God. How much margin do you have? Where are you allowing God to breathe life into you, help you to dream new dreams, think new things, and just doodle? Because here's what I know in my life. I seem to hear God more clearly in the margins. I, I seem to hear God speak more clearly to me when I pause from all my activities and my busyness. When I pause, it's like, oh, God is speaking now. My fear is that he's been speaking all along. But I've been so busy that I just didn't hear him. What am I missing? What am I missing in the busyness? What am I missing in my activity and, and just rushing, 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 kicking and screaming that's not really accomplishing anything in my life? And what if I just paused and said, God, I'm listening. What are you saying to me now? Let's pray. God, I thank you today for every person in this place who maybe identifies with what we've been talking about. They identify with a struggle, an addiction of some kind related to activity and motion and busyness and just filling our lives full of so many things that actually don't move the needle. We're just stuck on the adrenaline. We're just, it's all about stimulation and, and not actually about being satisfied in you. God, I pray that you would help us to address the mindset of captivity that the Israelites faced coming out of Egypt, that we would not allow our identity and our acceptance to be wrapped up in what we can produce, but that, God, we would give pause and we would take the free gift that you've given to us to rest, and that, God, we would not make it, make not doing something another to-do list item, but that we would truly see you, the gift that you've given to us of Sabbath, holy rest as a gift, and we would receive it, and we would live it out. God, I pray today for every person that maybe identifies this as something they're struggling with. God, help them today to repent, to make it right, to use this day to set up this next week to be different, to remove a few unnecessary things from the calendar, and to look ahead and plan a little more intentionally the next few days and weeks and months, to take the day off, to schedule the vacation, 
to just be more intentional to disconnect when they have opportunity to do so. God, I believe you'll do a healing work as you breathe new life into them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening today. If you would like more information about today's message or about our church, we invite you to visit us at cantonchurch.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash cantonchurchga. 